Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the ninth chapter, the second to the tenth verse. This is a most unusual gospel and for many considered to be in a most unusual place. But it belongs where it is, and as we move into the gospel, we'll try and see why that's so. It's the story of the transfiguration of the Lord, and it begins that Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. They're going to see the glory of the Lord but they are also the ones who are with Jesus at his agony in the garden. So they're going to see before the actual crucifixion, the extremes of the presence of the Messiah in the midst of the people of Israel. Exactly who he is, is beginning to be unfolded to them. And they are beginning then to understand, first of all, They have only seen him now in his public ministry. They have seen his signs and his wonders. Eventually, now, they are going to see his glory, but they are also then going to see the depths of his sadness, the depths of the pain of his heart for the sake of his people. And so Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain where they could be alone by themselves. And there in their presence he was transfigured. His clothes became dazzlingly white, whiter than any earthly bleacher could make them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So here we have now, we have to put it into context. Jesus is now taking his three, James, John, and Peter. He's going up on a high mountain to pray. There's a great deal of debate in the Gospels as to where that high mountain is. Tradition seems to have settled on Mount Tabor, but it's also possible that it would have been the Mount Hermon, which is nearer to Caesarea Philippi. For what has happened is now this follows upon, this gospel follows upon the testimony of St. Peter. In Matthew's gospel in 1618, when Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That testimony of Peter is the bedrock of the faith through all, through all time until the consummation of the world. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. In that testimony then, Jesus, as we know, begins then to tell Peter what that means to be the Messiah. And Peter is dismissive of it because for him... The Messiah is going to be the fulfillment of the nationalistic expectations of the people of Israel, something we've seen over and over again. And yet Jesus Jen says to him, get behind me, Satan. And then he be, you're thinking like man and not like God. Then he begins to tell him what it means to be a disciple. And part of that is, unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you will not enter into the kingdom of God and so forth. So he is introducing the element of suffering and he is introducing the element of disappointment and he is introducing the element of the great burden. Once this has taken place, then he takes the three disciples with him. Then he goes up onto the mountain and then it says he has transfigured. And this is a funny word because transfigured can also have a meaning to it, which is 
used only again in St. Paul. And the word is metamorpho. And it means the changing, the spiritual transformation of the Christian through grace in St. Paul and Romans and in Corinthians. But it means the total, the total transformation of the person. And so when it says that Jesus is metamorphosized on the mount, it means that his person is completely open now, completely fulfilled and completely filled with grace, completely filled with the true presence of who he is. And the result of it is he shines so brightly that they cover their eyes. And then when they do look up and they see him in his glory, he is speaking with Elijah and with Moses. So what does this mean that Elijah and Moses are present? We know that these are the messianic figures from the Old Testament, from the story of Israel. Elijah the great prophet and Moses the giver of the law. So the law and the prophets is summed up in the personhood of Elijah and Moses. So Jesus being transfigured now has present with him the law and the prophets. In other words, the totality of the revelation that has so far been given to the people of Israel by the living God, by their God, the God who is therefore with them in covenant from the days of Abraham. We find that in this, what they are speaking with Jesus. And so the question becomes, what would they be talking about? Mark does not tell us. Luke tells us they're talking about what is going to happen in Jerusalem. And it is here that John picks up what is to happen in Jerusalem is the glorification of the Lord. And what is the glorification of the Lord for John? It is the crucifixion. And so we say to ourselves, well, how can the crucifixion, how can something so maudlin, something so sad and, and so destructive be the glorification? And the reason is this, it's interesting. The reason is this, because it is not in the fulfillment of the expectations of the people of Israel. It is not their nationalistic fulfillment of their nationalistic expectations. The fulfillment even of many of their spiritual expectations, perhaps. And it is not the, the glorification of the Lord is not the fulfillment of Jesus' dreams for Israel that it is in his obedience to the Father. The glorification of the Lord is the obedience of Jesus to the Father. And we see this again in the presence of the three, Peter, James, and John, in the agony in the garden. Father, your will, not mine, be done. In that is the glory of the Lord. In that is this obedience of the Son to the Father out of a love that is so profound that he is even willing to allow all the dreams of his people and all of the hopes that he might have had himself to be shattered by the will of the Father. How many of us would be willing to be that obedient to the Father, to be able to say to the Lord, you know, I have these great dreams, these great hopes. I want to, I, I want to be a saint, we could say. I want to be a martyr, we could say. I, I, I want to be this or I want to be that. And the will of God is to say you shall be ordinary. Wouldn't that be something if that were to happen to us? And yet that is the burden of the Christian in every age and in every place. The one who truly believes desires to be extraordinary. And the will of the Father is our ordinariness. 
and in being ordinary, we somehow or other fail in our own dreams of grandeur, but at the same time we fulfill the will and the plan and the work of the Father. This is the glory of the Lord, and this is the glory of the Church, and this is the glory of each Christian that no matter what our dreams might be, no matter what our hopes might be, no matter what our desires might be, that the will of the Father is that to which we surrender in the course of our lifetime and surrender it all the way up until the end. This is what we're finding out about Jesus and something that the apostles are loath to admit, loath to accept, they don't want to accept this. Peter, we know, no, you can't do this. And here then, then Peter spoke to Jesus. Rabbi, he said, this is wonderful. So let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In other words, let's preserve this moment. Let's not look at the rest of it. Let's just throw down our anchors right here. Here we have it, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Here we have it, the glorification of the Messiah. Here we have everything. Let's just plant it firmly on the earth, and then we can always have it with us. But it says in the gospel also, he did not know what to say, they were so frightened. And so then, once he has tried to hang on to the vision, once he has tried to hang on to what they see before them, then the voice comes from the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. This is God's directive to each one of us as well, listen to the Word of God. You know, it's interesting, we can get into discussions, political discussions, and, and uh, you know, one of the big issues um, in, in, in politics is, is, well, you can't talk about politics, and then all of a sudden you're saying, well, you know, abortion is a political issue, or euthanasia is a political issue, mutilation of children a political. No, it's an issue of human persons. It's not a political issue, it is a moral issue. And in that moral issue, we can have these discussions. And many of the discussions are, and I, I, re, I recall some discussions, well, I believe this, and this is why, and I believe this, and this is why, and I'm a professional this, and this is what I see, and I have worked with this, and the what I see, and so forth. Not once in those do we hear the part of the discussion being, but God said, but God said. God spoke through the scriptures. He implanted the, the gift of the prophetic gift of the scriptures in the magisterial voice of the church. Not everything the church says is magisterial, and not everything the church says is from God. But there are things which are in the heart of the church through the magisterium that have been preserved for us for generation upon generation for thousands of years the things that God has spoken to his people. This is the beginning of any discussion of the issues concerning humanity. It is not my professional skill set. It is not my education. It is not my personal experience. What has God said about it? Go back to the gospel. And a cloud came covering them in shadow. And there came a voice from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus, now we have already seen him in the temptation in the desert, overcome evil. In the healing of people, overcoming evil. 
we have also seen in him picking up the prophetic strain of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is in it, be spiritually transformed. Paul uses the word metamorphosis. He uses it in Romans. He uses it in Corinthians. Yourselves to be changed by the love of God in your life. Allow that. We've seen all that. And then Jesus, whenever he speaks now, in the temptations he has overcome evil in, in any possibility. There was no possibility of evil in his life, but all the attacks he overcame. He overcame the powers of evil. And then he overcomes it again in the sinfulness of the world. And then he overcomes it again in liberating people from the clutches of that sinfulness in the world. Pick up your mat and walk. And they are scandalized. He says, what's easier to say? Pick up your mat and walk. Or your sins are forgiven. Or pick up your mat and walk. And so they're scandalized because he forgives sin. Then in John's gospel, he says, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. This is the power, the unleashing, the, the, the liberation from bondage is, is the work of the Messiah. He overcomes evil. And in overcoming evil, he then utters the words of prophecy, which means authority and authenticity. And in, 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 in that, he therefore guides and directs the lives of his people from the inside out. And all of the powers of heaven and all the principalities and all of the arguments and all of the education and all of the corrupt institutes of higher education and all the professions which have gone astray, none of their wisdom is greater than the word of God. None. None is enduring. All of it will pass away except the prophetic word of Jesus Christ, which is embedded in the magisterial voice of the church. We can hear all sorts of things coming from all sorts of places in the church, even from the highest place in the church. And it has nothing to do with the magisterium of the church. The magisterium of the church is the voice of prophecy. And the prophecy is that which is embedded, guided and protected by the Holy Spirit, in the deepest magisterial office of the church and in the deepest tradition of the church. This is what God means when he says, listen to him. And once he has cast that out, once he has forever cast that out among the people, forever he has cast that out, then suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. But you see, Jesus now is only Jesus. He is their friend. He is their teacher. He is the itinerant preacher. But now we know also that he is the one who casts out evil, who overcomes the powers of evil. And we know now that he is the voice, the prophetic voice of the Father, the one who speaks authoritatively and authentically what is the mind and the heart of the Father. So that only Jesus becomes once again grappling with the ordinary, with deep in our hearts through faith, knowing that the ordinary is not ordinary, that the ordinary contains within itself the most extraordinary that we could possibly ever imagine or comprehend. And then as they come down, came down from the mountain, he warned them to tell no one what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is Mark's gospel. This is the messianic secret. You tell people what you saw, and they will expect to see it as well.
And when they do not, they will not believe you, and they will not believe in me. False expectations are the mortal enemy of faith. They observe the warning faithfully, even though among themselves they discussed what does it mean to rise from the dead. They did not yet understand what the final messianic triumph over sin and evil was going to be, for they had, could not imagine what would transpire. And we know that when Jesus goes into the Passion, that they despair. Even though they have seen his glory, even though Peter has seen his glory, Peter denies that he even knows him three times. Even though Peter is the one who witnessed that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, Peter is the one who denies him three times. The fragility of human nature, the fragility of goodness. It is something that each of us has to ponder very seriously and ponder very seriously in our lives. All of us who believe try to live as we should, but all of us who believe encounter personal failures along the way. John himself says, anyone who says that they have not sinned is a liar. We have all sinned. Along this journey of life, we're not that much more perfect than were Peter and the apostles. We can say, yes, they despaired, but they hadn't even seen the resurrection yet. We have witness to the resurrection, and yet we ourselves also, each of us in our own way, on and off during the course of our lifetimes, deny the living God, deny Jesus, and say then about him, honestly, in our own sort of way, I don't know who he is. I don't know who you're talking about. When I choose to live in mortal sin, I can, I'm saying, I don't know who you are. When I choose to somehow be embarrassed by the faith, I'm saying, I don't know who you are. When we, in fact, back down from not becoming aggressive or obnoxious or belligerent, but even in our own quiet way, back down from the defense of Christ and the defense of the church, from the, de from the denial of our own identity, we're saying, I do not know the man. And so we join the apostles in their human frailty, but we also hopefully, eventually in our lives, join the apostles in their zeal in their total commitment, and in their willingness to offer themselves to the Lord. For every apostle, as far as we know, except for John, is martyred. And John dies in a very old age, in exile, after having gone through many trials and many difficulties. Life would have been easier for him had he been beheaded with James. Life would have been very e much easier for him, very honestly, if he would have been crucified with Peter. But he wasn't. He lived well into his 90s, apparently, and did so in exile, and did so after much difficulty and much trial in the world and in his life. So, did all of them have a glorious earthly conclusion to their lives? Well, according to eternity, yes according to human standards, no. And so we too must come to understand that the great burden of our lives may well be 
that it is ordinary. That we, when we come back from our moments of prayer or moments of insight, we find then only Jesus, only the one who walked with the disciples, only the one who walks with us. There is no idea, there is no sense of a quest for a historical Jesus. The historical Jesus is also the history of faith, of this Jesus of faith. He walked with the disciples and he walks with us. He does so in sacrament and he does so in word and he does so in truth. But he is closer to us in Eucharist than he was to the apostles before the resurrection and before the Last Supper actually. We have an advantage over the disciples, is that not just as Jesus is a companion to us, but Jesus is within us and we are within him, that he shares our life with us and we share our life with him, and that in so doing, the closeness becomes even more so than what the apostles were privy to. And yet we too, like the apostles, fail him and deny him. When we look at this gospel and we go back over this gospel and say to ourselves then, what does this mean for us? What it means for us, there is a certain simplicity to our faith, a trust, the kind of trust that a child has in their parent, the kind of trust that a child should have in those who look after them and guide them in this world. Unfortunately, much of the adult world seems to have gone quite mad and in find that harming children becomes part of the way they live their lives. Whether it is in the hospitals or the classrooms or the families or wherever it is, there, are, there is a segment of humanity which has turned on the children. And I think that we have to understand that this is the great betrayal. This is the great refusal, the great refusal of grace, the great refusal of truth, the great refusal of God's voice itself. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. There are those who put their hands over their ears. They don't want to hear the voice of prophecy. They don't want to hear the voice of the church. They don't want to hear the voice of Jesus Christ. And instead, they turn in anger and in violence on large segments of society who are innocent, on large segments of society who have no way to protect themselves. And they do so as they shout out their condemnations of the Christian faith, as they light fires and desecrate our churches. And yet, in the end, they have nothing. And yet, in the end, we have everything. And I think that this is something that should bring us a certain amount of peace and a certain amount of calmness. We certainly should work to save the children from the evil forces of society, wherever they, we find them and wherever they are. We should work always for the good of all people. We should strive to do the very best that we can to eliminate the power of sin in the world. In the end, our efforts will turn out to be probably fairly ordinary. We will not always have great success, although we may have successes. But in the end, did we listen to the word of God? Did we believe it in our hearts? And did we try to live it 
in our lives, free from the madness of culture and time and place, and free from the pressures and free from the dangers of contemporary society. We are the believers, we are the pilgrims, we are the children of the Lord. We depend on him and trust him as a child trusts their father and should be able to trust their father. We walk the rocky road of that pilgrimage and there is no reason for us to believe that we in any way, shape or form will be more triumphant than the Lord or more immune than the apostles. We will walk the road, but we will walk it into eternity. And I think that we take hope as the apostles took hope. The transfiguration did not remove from them their human weakness, but it planted a seed within them of ultimate trust. Our encounters with the sacramental Lord should do for us the same. It will not alleviate our fears, it will not alleviate our failures, but it will plant within us that seed of hope that leads us onward into the eternal kingdom of God. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So